and welcome to Rising. We have a, what kind of show do we have today? A super duper show today. <laughs> Emily Jashinsky and Rebecca Azor will weigh in on the reaction to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, his reaction to kids at a drag show. And then Ken Klippenstein will discuss why he's calling the manager, of going full Karen, I guess, on the <laughs> National Archives a valid target for such behavior after they de uh, deleted Secret Service tax. Plus, David Dane parses through Democrats' new spending bill. But first, new GDP numbers are out, and it's not a good look for the economy. Washington Post economic reporter Heather Long writes, the U.S. economy contracted negative 0.9% in the second quarter. That comes after a negative 1.6 GDP in quarter one. Two quarters of negative GDP typically signal a recession, but the group of economists that declare recession have not acted yet. What is clear is that there's been a big slowdown. Hmm. So, of course, over the last few days, there's been this ongoing discussion of whether or not it is technically a recession. And now, even by the metrics that were promulgated by the White House, it looks like we're there. I guess they have to admit it's a recession. <laughs> I mean, all of this trying to massage the definition of recession over the last few days seems additionally pointless now, as you point out. So. Certainly. Great, great of what a brilliant idea of the Biden administration to prioritize that. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, I understand. I think one of our guests yesterday said, you know, there's some, you know, the, the stats are what they are. The technical definitions are what they are. And, you know, it almost be like negligence for the Biden administration not to try to make the case for why they shouldn't be criticized quite as strongly yet. But the point that so many other people were making, I saw Jordan Cheriton tweeting about this earlier today, is that if you've been covering working people, if you've been traveling the country, if you've been, you know, talking to your relatives, if you are at all outside a of a recession. bubble, you've known something was wrong, whatever you want to call it, for a very long time. Mm. Absolutely. Well, Jerome Powell answered questions about whether the U.S. is currently in a recession based on these definitions. Let's watch that. Your assessment of the risk of recession changed any in recent weeks? So I don't I do not think the U.S. is currently in a recession. Um, and the reason is there are just too many areas of the economy that are that are performing, uh, you know, too well. And, and of course, I would point to the labor market in, in particular. Uh, as I mentioned, it's true that growth is slowing, and for reasons that we understand, really the growth was extraordinarily high last year, 5.5%. We would have expected growth to slow. There's also more slowing going on now. But if you look at the labor market, you've got growth, I think, payroll jobs averaging 450,000 per month. That's a remarkably strong level for, for this state of, of affairs. The unemployment rate at near a 50-year low at 3.6%. All of the wage uh, measures that we track are running very strong. So this is a very strong labor market, and it's just not consistent with, you know, 2.7 million people hired in the first half of the year. Uh, it doesn't make sense that the economy would be in recession with, with this kind of thing happening. So uh, I don't think the, the U.S. economy is in recession right now. And yet it is. <laughs> and yet it is. Look, the pandemic, the labor market is rebounding from the pandemic being not in the rearview mirror, but at least its economic consequences, mostly in the in the rearview mirror in terms of people are not uh, near reorienting their lives to avoid catching COVID nearly to the same right. degree and that they're staying home. Businesses also, the businesses yeah, aren't shut down. Um, a lot of the financial support the government gave to people in order to you know, bribe them to stay at home uh, has run out. So, Support them in staying at home so okay. they don't catch we, a disease. You, can, you describe it your way, I'll describe it mine. Okay. Uh, that has run out, so people have had to return to work, and they've done so. So the labor market has rebounded. It, it's rebounded given that the government 
destroyed it. And you could say it was necessary to do so, but they hit the off switch. Now we've hit the on switch. That's mostly come back. I think it's a good thing. Great. Fantastic. But it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that everything's good or everything's fine even when people, working people can't afford food. They can't procure baby formula. They can't afford to fill up. There's small business owners who, who uh, work in industries that rely on trucking or shipping or moving a truck around on a daily basis. You can't afford the gas prices. Um, it's really bad. It's really bad for a lot of people. Yeah, so as we've discussed, main driver of the gas prices is the war in Ukraine, you know, that is Long as it takes. not a kind of domestic Biden policy. I mean, it, you know, it's not a domestic policy issue. It's a foreign policy issue. And that is something that is largely within the administration's control. What do they want to do? What do they want America's investment in this proxy war to continue to be? Okay, put that in one bucket. But we had a graphic up a, a little while ago. I don't know if we have it again, but it showed what the drivers of inflation were, what the drivers of the crisis were. And it is that people don't have, you know, there's the that home spending is down. Oh, here we go. You know, uh, people can't spend on real estate if they don't have any money. There's not gonna, they're not mm -hmm. gonna spend on business investment. I don't understand these incentives here. You wanna make it more difficult to borrow, but you need people to drive up business investment. You need, you know, the big drop in inventories. We're talking about supply chain problems here. I mean, these are not new issues. And when I've spoken to economists recently, uh, Professor Fidel Kaboob on my own show, he's pointed out that the Things that are driving inflation are, are particularly uh, high cost in a discrete number of sectors, four specific sectors he listed, including education. We talk a lot, mm -hmm. I talk a lot about the cost of education and how we need to reform our higher education system in, in particular so that we don't have people taking out all these loans and inflating the uh, college market. Uh, in transportation, we were supposed to have an infrastructure bill that is, has been all over the place and largely stymied by Republicans and two corporate Democrats. Right. For but that one, I mean, that, but that one passed, right? What's well in a extremely neutered form that we will talk about it, uh, later in this program. Um, and healthcare is another huge, huge one where there's been very little done. And again, we'll talk about what's been done in this uh, most recent uh, effort yesterday, but very little has been done historically to bring down these healthcare costs and bring us in line with the rest of the world in terms of how our healthcare system operates. So if you actually want to address these systemic changes, this is the time to do it, but no one ever seems to want to do that. They want to nitpick around the edges. And I got to say, Republicans aren't really offering much in the way of solutions here either, which is why I think there's such a healthy appetite right now mm -hmm. for third parties. I've heard this described as cost disease, the problem that uh, education, healthcare, um, so some other things, housing, it just keeps getting more and more and more expensive or has over the last 40 years or more um, without, without the, the services getting appreciably better. Mm -hmm. uh, is education in this country really better than it was in the 1970s? Um, maybe it's a little bit better. It costs astronomically more. Yeah. Uh, and actually, if you look at the, you know, if you look at reading and math scores, standardized test scores, and they're not a perfect measurement of anything, but they've not, you don't, you don't see increases. You don't see us doing better, even though we're spending right. way more and you don't see improvements. Uh, this, the same thing uh, is true. The healthcare sector has gotten astronomically more expensive. You've had innovations in, you know, some medicine, some therapies. It's better, but you don't get the, you don't get as, as much time with your doctor. It takes longer nope. to see a doctor. You, in, in so many ways, it's, it's uh, the human aspect of the care is so much worse. The uh, aspects of the economy that, that involve human work, human labor, um, have ju have gotten so much more expensive without any increase and in the, services. And at the same time, as 
American workers have become more efficient, productivity has gone up, their wages have also remained stagnant despite the mm -hmm. cost of all of these goods and services going up. This is a problem. And right. it's that money is not all that money that's coming out of the productivity. It exists. It's going somewhere. It's why we have enormous ratios between CEO pay and worker pay that didn't exist back in the 1950s and 60s. What were 30 to 1 ratios are now 300 plus to 1 ratios. And we're seeing CEOs flying out of golden parachutes all over the place in the context of this post-pandemic you know, recession. Yeah, I don't, that it, and very little is, is, is trickling down to the American worker. We were sold the false bill of goods by Republicans for the last 30 years that trickle down economics was going to work. And I think that Americans are really feeling the impact of that kind of economic policy that says, let's take care of the rich and hope that everyone else is booted along that, the way. Well, I don't think that explains what's going on in some, I don't think that explains what's going on in the edu education sector. I mean, it's, no. not a, it's not an effort. But it was, it's, I'm sorry, I gotta say, it was Ronald Reagan who made it his mission to defund the California public school system, which offered cheap, affordable, accessible education, state education to people in the largest state in the union. And that trend continued across the country. Defund the California public education system. Yeah. What do you mean by that? It withdrew federal funding from the state school system. In general, no school district has received a funding cut like ever. It's always more money for more school districts, we're, more per pupil spending. We're, we're talking about college. I'm talking about the oh, higher college, education. College, sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It, it, they keep, Democrats' idea seems to be, right, more investment in these things will improve it. I often don't see it, but uh, I don't know, maybe next time. Look, the, the point of the matter is I am completely on board with all of the criticisms coming across the aisle. I share in them. But what I really do want to be hearing from both parties and whatever third parties happen to emerge is affirmative solutions for how we're going to do things differently than they've been done in the past. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to agree with a lot of criticisms that are coming out of the right because, again, Criticisms are warranted, but that's not enough anymore. Saying rah, rah, we're all angry at the same thing isn't enough anymore when we're 50 years into what has been a slow simmering crisis for the American worker. We would have so much less to fight about right and left if either the, the vast increase in uh, how much money and attention paid to problems in education, healthcare, others, it was actually making these services better, mm -hmm. or you had whatever the quality you have today but you, didn't, you had, didn't have to spend as much on them as we do spend on them for no additional benefit. Other countries have figured this out better than ours somehow. There's something somehow, broken somehow. about what we do. Well, it's Citizens United is the fact that healthcare, uh. the healthcare industry has bought our entire government on both sides of the aisle. It's, you have people on the, on the left-hand side of the aisle um, completely derailing any kind of progressive campaign, very popular campaign for, I'm sorry, very popular policies like Medicare for All, because they happen to be folks like Jim Clyburn, who won this race for Joe Biden and also happens to be the person who takes more money from the pharmaceutical industry than anybody else in Congress. These things are not an accident. And the American people turn on their TV and they see that the innovations that are coming out of the private sector are half a million dollar Alzheimer medications that are so expensive they drive up the entire cost of the social safety And net. for some reason, the FDA approved that one. Yeah, it's Can't, ridiculous. <laughs> it's, look, has no, has, expresses no hustle for uh, monkeypox or COVID or anything else, but they approved that yeah, one. It's, 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 it, it's that not, product looks like 
a scam to me, the Alzheimer's right. drug. And it's I not agree. for no reason. It's because there's industry capture, yeah. and this is what those lobbying dollars will get you. And so we either have to stand up and say we're not going to deal with a for-profit industry infecting our health care, decide that you shouldn't be sick and die just because your family happens not to be able to afford a medical bill, decide to decouple health care from your ability to stay employed, which was the most cockamamie scheme as made but apparent I would say that, by the COVID crisis, where obviously people but I would were just, like, oh, I would just say that if sick. people want to take that uh, that Alzheimer's, I, we should probably talk about that this specific issue in greater length actually at some point. But I would just say it should not be subsidized. People want to take it, go go for it. But you're right, it shouldn't. The whole society shouldn't be on the hook for paying for a drug that doesn't look to me like it works right. very but well. The, the bigger issue I wouldn't is stop people from the, trying it. I just the, wouldn't make other people pay for it. Sure. But the point of the matter is that de people uh, abstaining from participating in the market, in the healthcare market, is not the solution here. What you need is more people buying in and sharing costs more broadly. Well, that's what we're doing with the Alzheimer's drug. No, we're that, the problem with the Alzheimer's drug is pharmaceutical pricing, not the fact that people have access to it. I don't think diminishing access is the point that I'm trying to make, and that average Americans really do understand because they overwhelmingly support this program and they overwhelmingly are happy to have access to programs like Medicare, period, even though it needs to be improved and expanded, is that we need to not have the cost of healthcare determining outcomes. And we are one of the only countries in the world that has that current system. And it's it's because we have allowed the for-profit motive to infect our healthcare system the same way that it has in all these other sectors. And we see it in education. We see it in the privatization of education. We see it in what's happening with housing and a lot of these private public partnerships that have given government money to incentivize private buildings. Because you have a mix of the for-profit for sector. Sorry, just if I can okay, just go ahead. That, so that people cannot make uh, affordable housing units, affordable housing dollars that are designated by the government are going toward housing units that only have a very small number of units actually reserved for people to be able to afford them. And we can sit here and say you need to further privatize, but everyone has eyes and everyone can see what the privatization sweep of the last 50 years has resulted in terms of all of the affordability metrics that we just went through and listed. So I don't think that people are going to be very open to the idea of throwing, you know, in private investment funds and management funds that caused, frankly, the last recession, throwing all of us to the wolves of those exact same people. I think people are wanting more mid-century FDR-style solutions, because when we talk about when America was great, it was that period of time that people are talking about. And so why not try to return to some of those interventions that the actually 1930s? use the government? Yeah, are you, are, you, are you quibbling with the idea that FDR was- <laughs> Raise your hand if you want to go back to the 1930s. Raise your hand if you want to go back to a world before Medicare, Social Security, uh, you know, it, 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 that workers' rights <laughs> to have a forty-dollar, a forty-hour work week, child labor laws, any kind of workplace safety, OSHA, a National Labor Relations Board. Do you want to go back to a time before all of that? Yes. All right. Well, you're an outlier there, uh, Robbie, which is why perhaps we haven't seen a, a libertarian president <laughs> yet. Oh well, we haven't seen a leftist president in quite a while either. So yeah, well, we had, at least some, we had one. Uh, at least uh, we had an FDR. And well, he we had the Calvin most, Coolidge. He, he was, was the, the most kind of libertarian president. president. Times were good history. in the 1920s. Is most our most libertarian president. So. We can we can live in, in our, the Gilded Age. We can live in our respective uh, our respective historical decades. Okay, the uh, Great Gatsby over yeah. here. Okay. Grapes of uh, grapes of wrath over here. More more rising next. Andrew Yang's forward party is gaining some momentum as other former Republicans, Democrats, and independents have joined forces with the former presidential candidate to form what we hope to be a viable third party. In an op-ed for The Washington Post, Yang, along with former Republican lawmakers David Jolly and Christine Todd Whitman, 
wrote, we're tired of just talking about a third way. So this month, we're merging our three national political organizations, which represent left, right, and center on the political spectrum, to build the launch pad for a new political party called Forward. And a recent Suffolk University USA Today poll shows there's indeed an appetite for a third party. 60% of voters surveyed said that a third party or many parties are necessary. Only 25% were happy with a two-party system. 69% of independents want a third party, the most according to this poll, followed by 67% of Biden voters and just 49% of former Trump voters. Last year, a Gallup poll showed similar results, with 62% saying that a third party is needed. Andrew Yang tweeted out these numbers, which show a breakdown by ideology as opposed to party lines, with the largest appetite for a third party among moderates. So what do you make of that, Brianna? First of all, I am a little surprised that the number of Democrats who want a third party is almost as high as the number of independents, and it's the Republican number that's significantly lower of the three. They like their guy. And I'm especially <laughs> like surprised guy. by that because the pushback I've seen about the forward party from the internet seems to be largely from not just liberals, but a lot of leftists who the leftists perceive Andrew Yang as acting in bad faith and that this party is not going to actually solve the fundamental problems of the corporate two-party system. There are no prohibitions against taking corporate money, and there's no proof that it will have the kind of independence that we would hope from a third party, not just like another corrupt party, even though I would, I would argue more, more parties are still more parties and, that, would, and that good. More, yes. But the liberal complaint, as always, is that there's going to be a spoiler effect, which, you know, we're going to have 2000 all over again or Jill Stein 2016 all over again, which I also think is interesting since the bulk of the members of this party so far seem to be an, of a conservative tilt. So there's this weird asymmetry between liberals being hating it, not liking for it as much as Republicans seem to be in terms of joining and being a member, and also being more afraid than Republicans are about it having a spoiler effect on their ele elections. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Spoiler complaints are always a, a little suspicious to me, right? These are complaints that get thrown at the Green Party and get thrown at the Libertarian Party, my own party. Um, most, so the Libertarian Party draws from some people who vote Libertarian would have otherwise voted Republican. Some would have otherwise voted Democrat. Many would have otherwise not voted at all right. or, or cast a write-in ballot for someone. Uh, I would fall into that category. So you can't yep. say Same. that. And you really have only yourself to blame if you're not getting these voters. If you're really interested in these voters, you can speak to their issues and maybe you'll get some of them. You don't, you're not owed anyone's vote. They're not, there's not... It's, it's not everyone has to vote Republican or Democrat, and how dare someone intrude on this and say, don't do either of those things. There's nothing in our, our system has unfortunately favored the growth of just two political parties, mm -hmm. but there's nothing in our laws or our, or our founding documents that necessitates there should only be two parties. It's just this very unfortunate dynamic we have that they don't have in many other countries that seem to me to have healthier political regimes where there is, I mean, I'm, I'm a free market guy. I'm a fan of competition. Yeah. More parties would mean more political competition for your votes. You could have coalition, issue-based coalitions. That's what seems to happen yeah. in other countries, right? Where we're, on this issue, the, these two or three or four parties unite for a while, and then maybe because of infighting, they, they shake things up. But mm -hmm. we don't get to do that because we just have this horrible duopoly. Yeah, and to be clear, it's not an accident that we only have the two-party system. It's something It, it really rattles me and frustrates me when I see Democrats talking about how 
third parties just aren't effective and the Green Party just can't win when they have actively tried to oppose third party efforts by doing things like um, trying to overturn and successfully overturning ballot initiatives to get ranked choice voting, which of course gets rid of the spoiler argument for either main, major party. Um, and as they did recently in North Carolina, literally push a Green Party ca candidate off the ballot who had you know, well, well, you know, ex extremely exceeded his um, uh, signature requirements to get on the ballot using uh, a, a Democratic Party acolyte, a lawyer uh, whose eponymous firm, uh, the Mark Elias firm, has represented big players like Hillary Clinton. His firm, they were involved in um, cold calling people who had signed the, the ballot petition asking if they really wanted to cause the Republican to win and representing that they were part of the Matthew Hogue campaign or the Green Party um, uh, locally. Mis those kind of blatant misrepresentations were caught on tape. And of course, Matthew Ho was fighting back. But Mark Elias, of course, unsurprisingly, someone who has fought very hard for the Democratic Party to remain only one of two corporate parties, tweeted, uh, before the media gets all excited over this and over-reports this, uh, insist they detail how they expect to get on the ballot. It's one thing to announce a new party. It's quite another uh, for it to actually field candidates who appear on real ballots. I thought that was pretty rich, given that he's actively being, um, you know, litigated against because of his efforts to keep Green parties off the ballot. It does speak to the uh, the strategy, though, that I would recommend to any third party or, or party that's trying to get going is uh, is look at the local level. Find, you know, pick local races where there are specific issues that you can speak to and you can because at the local level you can have success for third parties sometimes and, and the green party has been having a yeah. great deal of success in places like new york where in this last cycle they have got a, a number of candidates elected but it is frustrating to see that there is some appetite for someone like you know matthew even on a um in a senate campaign on a u.s senate campaign and i think the, the influence of someone like Mark Elias getting involved in North Carolina speaks to the fact that there is a real threat that third-party candidates pose. And so I appreciate why people on the left, more broadly speaking, are skeptical of Andrew Yang because of the, some of the positions that he's taken, this odd kind of pivot that he did in the context of his New York uh, mayoral race. But I do think that even though I might not personally subscribe to, say, the forward party over the Green Party in terms of my personal political ideals, I appreciate that this is a huge moneyed, funded effort to achieve some goals that are shared, like getting ranked choice voting, voting, like getting ballot uh, access that is going to help all other kind of uh, third party efforts across the country. Yes. And that's what I would say to people. You, you really should support if you're an independent minded person, if you're a person who wants to, who is dissatisfied with a lot of what you get from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, you really should support the success and growth of third parties, even if you don't agree with a lot of what they have to say, because Realistically, they are not in no third party is in any danger right now of taking control of the federal government. Supporting the efforts of third parties is really about supporting the concept of third parties right. and supporting reforms to our political system, reforms we should absolutely be in favor of because this is terrible and this yeah. is toxic and it's tearing us apart. Yeah. Eddie Gloud made this point in the concept of 2016. There's a lot of discussion about throwing your vote away. You know, don't vote for a third party or throwing your vote away. My feeling is if you live in a deeply red or deeply blue state, the one way you can guarantee your vote is thrown away. This is how I felt yeah. in 2016 living in New York was to vote for Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was going to win New York no matter what I did. Voting for a third party candidate, voting for the Green Party to help it get um, to the 5% mark where it could get federal matching funds and run better candidates 
and get on the ballot in more places to me seem to be an, a much uh, better use of my time. Even if you, right, even if you live in one of the contested states, it never comes down to just one vote. It's still when we talk about close, we're still talking about thousands of votes. I mean, the closest you could ever get is living in that one county in Florida in 2000 where they printed the ballots wrong, and then even even then, it's still hundreds of votes or whatever it was. Yeah. Well. So so don't don't feel don't feel like you're throwing your vote away. You know, vote for vote for your values. Vote for some reform to this system if that. So, so moves you. Not telling you how to vote, obviously. It's up to you. <laughs> well, Brianna, what's on your radar today? Is monkeypox the new COVID? By now, you're aware that after two years of COVID, there's a new virus on the scene, monkeypox. The disease does not resemble the novel coronavirus in transmission or effect. Unlike COVID, which is primarily spread through airborne droplets, monkeypox is mostly spread via close physical contact with lesions or body fluids of an infected person. COVID is a respiratory virus, while monkeypox presents clinically with fever and skin abrasions in the form of a rash or pox. For the first year of the COVID pandemic, vaccines had not yet been developed for the novel coronavirus, but monkeypox is far from novel. It was first identified in a colony of monkeys in Copenhagen in 1958 and is endemic to two Central and Southern African countries, to 10 countries there. Uh, for that reason, we don't have to wait for scientists to come up with a vaccine. Hallelujah. And yet, with 3,000 cases of monkeypox detected in the U.S. since the first case was identified in May, demand for the vaccine vastly outstrips supply. Now, why is that? Despite there being many differences between COVID and monkeypox, one similarity remains. The government has so far bungled its response. Here's the status of the monkeypox vaccine. In 2003, the U.S. government con contracted with the Danish firm Bavaria Nordic to develop the primary monkeypox vaccine called Genios. Although the vaccine for smallpox, which had been eradicated, is also effective for monkeypox, it comes with some side effects that are especially harmful to immuno immunocompromised individuals, like those living with HIV. But no worries, the scientists were on it, and the Genios vaccine is broadly safe and effective. In fact, over 1.1 million doses of that vaccine are currently owned by the U.S. and were stockpiled in Denmark. But in one of the world's all-time worst cases of bad timing, the Danish vaccine manufacturer had moved production of the vaccine to a new facility that had not been inspected by the FDA. And although the old facilities had been inspected by the FDA, the new facilities weren't scheduled to be inspected until this coming August. Now, before any medicine can be distributed in the United States, the factory where it's manufactured must be inspected by the FDA. People might disagree, but I think that's a good thing. Remember the baby formula shortage? That happened in part because contaminated formula killed two babies and triggered the shutdown of major factories. And the contamination was traced in part to the FDA's failure to regularly inspect the facilities because of COVID. The agency skipped about 15,000 inspections due to COVID, and as a consequence, two babies died. Now, the problem isn't the inspection requirement, but that the FDA as an agency is failing to inspect in an efficient and timely way. Monkeypox was detected in the UK in early May. 
at which point the Danish manufacturer, Bavarian Nordic, did the right thing. It expedited its inspection application so that the FDA inspection could take place before August. But the inspection date chosen, July 1st, was still too late. New York Magazine reported that, quote, it's unclear why the FDA took so long to send inspectors to Denmark. The agency regularly conducted virtual inspections of drug facilities early in the COVID-19 pandemic. Over one million doses of the vaccine were literally sitting in freezers in Denmark, while high-risk Americans lined up around city blocks attempting to pull together as a community and stop the spread. Even worse, the FDA's European counterpart had already found the factory in compliance with the FDA standards last year, but the FDA refused to honor that inspection. Now, this mismanagement is galling on its face, but it's even worse in the context of a two-year pandemic in which so many of these lessons should have been learned. I thought PPE and ventilator shortages taught us hard lessons about manufacturing essential medical products overseas. And even if we did uh, devote resources to domestic production, we also need to develop the expertise to build products like ventilators, expertise that comes from education, vocational or otherwise, which in this country, you well know, is far from free. The average vocational or technical school graduate graduates with $10,000 of debt in the United States of America. Biden bragged yesterday about making billions available for school ventilation, free boosters, testing, high-quality masks, and more. But in May, he urged states and cities to use unspent money from last year's $1.9 trillion of COVID relief to hire more police officers, even as there remains no correlation between more police spending and lower crime. Also, let's get some perspective on this. According to the White House's own website, the American Rescue Plan provided $122 billion for schools. That money was not specifically earmarked for ventilators and filters, but can be used for that purpose. But as we all know, schools already have a ton of financial demands on them. And whether schools are even using the delegated funds to update their HVAC systems isn't being tracked on the federal level. According to a Georgetown University study, not a federal study, school districts had plans in place to spend about $4.4 billion on HVAC updates. Compare that amount to May's $40 billion Ukraine aid package, or this country's $800 billion military budget. American schools were already crumbling and the children inside of them were suffering from asthma and other respiratory issues before COVID. And Ukraine somehow got an infrastructure package before we did. No wonder faith in government is at historic lows. If you want people to comply with public safety measures, you have to actually make life easier for them, not harder. The onus cannot solely be put on the average citizen to stop COVID or monkeypox through masking and isolation. I mask and I encourage masking, but it's also important that city and state governments do their part to install the air purification devices that can lower COVID transmission by 41%, especially when you're dealing with kids who are unlikely to be super compliant when it comes to masking anyway. You can't just tell people to stay home. They need paid leave. Monkeypox requires a 21-day quarantine, a devastating time to go without pay for anyone, but especially the tipped workers who have been on the front lines of the COVID pandemic, and now this one. 
People with monkeypox symptoms are reporting difficulty being seen by a doctor in the first place. This, I would argue, is why it's important to have a universal healthcare system so that people have trusted relationships with primary care doctors and don't fear being secretly charged for tests they cannot afford. A recent Yale study showed that more than 335,000 lives could have been saved during the pandemic if we had had universal health care. How many members of our community are we willing to lose in the next pandemic simply because corporate politicians can't win without their big pharma donations and simply because we cannot learn any lessons from our nation's biggest and most recent tragedies? Mm. Well, I'm glad you discussed um, the government failures, of course, because I, as I mentioned yesterday, I'm very much worried we're making so many of the same mistakes uh, with monkeypox, yeah. which does not, as far as we can tell, have nearly the same likelihood of spilling out uh, to the general population. You're not going to contract it by just kind of breathing the same mm -hmm. air as people who have it. Thank goodness. Yeah. So we're not, you know, looking at a pandemic that's that's just going to be raging for everyone. But it is a really awful disease uh, that is spreading right now uh, among a certain subset of the population, and uh, that we're not better prepared to deal with it is maddening. Yeah, it is, it is frustrating to see some of the same mistakes being made. I mean, we're two years into this, and a lot of the excuses that kind of passed muster in the early days, there were supply chain issues, right? Mm -hmm. It is difficult to ramp up production of X, Y, and Z. Okay, you're caught flat-footed, and we, you know, 50%, I believe, of masks are manufactured in China. We couldn't get them. We couldn't get this on the other. I get it. But it's two years now, and it is frustrating that there hasn't been more of a mobilization to changing the way that we do things, especially in the public health context, to better protect American citizens. At the same time, when we're seeing a, an enormous willingness by the Biden administration to spend huge sums of money yep. to fight whatever they need, wars. whatever it takes. Yeah, blank check. Yeah, I think that's not a good use of that money. So your schools got all this money for the, the COVID stuff, and there wasn't a lot of direction mm -hmm. on exactly how they could spend it, which on one hand, uh, I, I wonder how you feel about this, actually. I am conflicted because I sometimes think, or I often think, if the government's going to give you know, monies to money to institutions, I, I often oppose it. But, well, if you're going to give it to them, just, just write a check. Yeah. Don't get overly cute about what they're supposed to do with it because people know what they need money for better than you do. That said, because of just the not good knowledge about what exactly to do with COVID and what interventions work, I mean, you had schools that spent that money on those stupid little plastic shields, for instance, that now we know do nothing or, or, even, or even might cause spread cause there to be more spread than there would have been yeah, and, and so look, it's even if it's, it's a not, hard call you know people are doing their best and I, yeah. I tend to agree that people in their various localities know what they need but also there was a lot of misinformation a lot of genuine confusion about what the best interventions were to lower the spread right. of covid and moreover when you have institutions where teachers are already dipping into their own small paychecks to buy school supplies in some of these really underserved districts, I don't necessarily blame people for having different priorities, even though from a public health perspective, I would argue that it might have benefited folks to earmark specifically funds right. for some of these big renovations. Because remember, these, these ventilators, these new uh, filtration systems, they've been long needed in a lot of these crumbling school districts, right? But these are expensive interventions relative to some of the other things that are going on in a school. And I can appreciate why one's individual judgment might be to say, okay, that's a big pot of money. I can solve 
15 problems instead of just this one big problem with the, with the HVAC system, even though, again, for public health reasons, their government's interest in having, is in having that money going toward clearing the air. Well, I saw some school districts, for instance, use the money to improve their outdoor facilities, like mm-hmm. a nicer, uh, which makes some COVID rational sense, or did, because, well, maybe we're going to ha- have more classes outdoors mm-hmm. when we do all that sort of thing. Now we're really not going to do that because it's not it's not so concerning that you can't have school indoors. But so having nicer facilities is good, but maybe that money would have been better spent doing the ventilation or something. So there's a the changing nature of the disease itself yeah. makes priorities that look smart a year ago no longer look smart. Yeah, so I don't know. And it's we're going to learn. I just want people to learn from those mistakes and be responsive. I'm not even interested in you know blaming the teachers or the school districts for making the wrong choice, but I do think. We've learned some lessons. Let's let's do the right thing going forward. And unfortunately, this FDA debacle with uh, monkeypox is all too familiar from my taste. We're we're seeing some movement on this front, though. So hopefully, at least the the government will learn from this most recent mistake going forward. I think we're going to have a real uh, medical expert on uh, monkeypox and the uh, COVID pandemic, etc., on with us next week. So I'm looking forward to that. Two new studies published on Tuesday claim to provide more evidence that the COVID-19 virus originated in a wet market in Wuhan, China, and not from a lab leak in the same city. We have the team rising Fridays to join us for the discussion. Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky, welcome to you both. And I think this is the first time all four of us are on camera at once, which is kind of exciting. When our powers combine. (laughs) It's a party. Yeah, it is a party. So, uh, uh, Ryan, I'll start with you. Um, you know, and we've talked about this uh, when you've co-hosted with me on the show. This information is all, you know, fascinating, and I think absolutely confirms that the wet market was an er- the early earliest super spreader event. But what I'm not seeing, contrary to the kind of headlines about these these studies, is really definitive evidence that this is where the virus itself originates from. Yeah, to find that kind of evidence, you would want to have some type of animal host that you could identify as as having, you know, tested positive or even some, you know, fecal sample or some other sample of their remains uh, to show that, like, okay, here is the animal. We think it jumped from this bat. Here's this bat. And this bat was in uh, in in the wet mark. And that and that is the type of evidence that they've gotten in the past in order to say like here here is how we know that this zoonotically jumped you know from nature you know from the wild in, into into humans uh, th- that doesn't have this what you know what this what this shows is that right the the this Wuhan market was the you know at least the the first super spreader event that we know about now we also know that you know the the Wuhan Institute of Virology was less than uh, you know, less than 10 miles away from there. And also, and people forget this, the, the CDC or the, Chi- the Chinese CDC has a Wuhan branch, which was studying all of this stuff as well. And it was, you know, less than 500 yards away from this Wuhan market. The WHO investigator, when he came to Wuhan toward this lab, didn't like the safety protocols that he saw there, could look out the window and see the market from there. <laughs> and he, and he publicly said like, this is this is really concerning. Like this this right here could be could be your your problem that you had somebody who was infected here as they were uh, maybe they were doing research from what came from the WIV or or their own type of research, and they went to the market, and then the the market has just 
the, the worst types of conditions for spreading this type of virus that we now know about. Uh, at very, very little circulation and, and people packed very much together. So if somebody went in there uh, with COVID, you would expect that tons of people would come out of there with COVID. So Emily, help us understand what exactly is new here. What is the new evidence that helps us uh, you know, confirm that if not the origin of COVID, the COVID-19 outbreak, that this was the earliest super spreader event at the, at the wet market? Right. So there's an Associated Press story that was up on the screen just a second ago, breaking down the findings of two new studies. One is on the cluster, basically the spread of the virus early in Wuhan, and the other is on early samples that we have from Wuhan. And what's really interesting in this AP story is that you have one of the research, one of the researchers referring to this as, quote, a smoking gun, saying this is as close to a smoking gun for the wet market theory as you could possibly get. Another saying this is very compelling evidence. One of the biggest problems, in addition to what Ryan just said, is, first of all, the media's confidence um, in doing something that would, in some ways, uh, you know, get China off the hook a little bit for its role, at least when it comes to the lab. Uh, the media's confidence in saying, this is it, this is this looks really compelling. This pretty much puts the lab leak theory to bed, which is, the I think, the tone of this article. But secondly, both of these surveys, and I haven't read them in detail yet, but they do rely on Chinese data. They rely on early data that was provided by the Chinese government. So that's, a, a, I think, another kind of conflict of interest in terms of getting to the actual truth here. They're relying on uh, spreading and cluster data from the Chinese government, and they're relying on sample data from the Chinese government. And again, the Chinese government has an interest in uh, you know, covering up the, the problems that may have existed at the lab which increasingly, and thanks to a lot of good reporting at The Intercept, actually, we know more about. Um, but they have an interest in, you know, making that kind of go away or covering that up or continuing to muddy the waters. Uh, so I am not nearly as convinced as the the Associated Press article implies that their journalist is that this is some sort of, you know, we could just put the lab leak theory to bed now. Right. And that's what's so frustrating, especially when uh, you see people in the media, in the mainstream media, using the term smoking gun. The smoking gun would be finding the animal, as was found in previous outbreaks that then confirmed the animal found uh, more quickly. Now, this time, more resources than ever have been put toward finding the animal, and it's not happened. That would be the smoking gun. Uh, and that's not what we got. So, uh, you know, Ryan, what does it say about kind of the mainstream media's, I guess, lack of uh, not total lack of curiosity, but a kind of like, well, yeah, we've nothing more to see here. We've kind of figured this out. Let's move on. I mean, I, I think it shows that the intellectual cloudiness that was created by the the, the kind of Trump era remains like the, the smoke mm -hmm. hasn't cleared yet. Like in the, the very beginning, when Trump was saying, you know, the, what, what was he calling it? Uh, Kung flu and saying and saying and he was you know one of the guys saying one of the leading figures saying that it came out of this lab then reflexively, everybody is going to say, or all the Democrats are going to say, well, that must mm -hmm. be wrong. Uh, you don't have Trump anymore, but the, the stench of that is is still with it. And Trump's accusation toward the Wuhan lab was kind of shot through with xenophobic, uh, you know, postures and, and rhetoric. And so at the same time, people were saying, we, we don't want to feed into that. But I think it's easy for people to 
step back and say, look, you don't have to blame the Chinese government for this. This was a joint effort, like quite literally a joint effort. Like there was a, an American organization, EcoHealth Alliance, that was funneling American money from the NIH to this lab. So, you know, if you want to do that meme of, you know, the Chinese Communist Party in USA holding <laughs> holding hands and doing this research, they did it together. So it is mm -hmm. not throwing China under the bus. Or pointing each, at each other like Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah, and Emily, that, you know, that speaks to the enormous uh, malincentives on the U.S. Uh, health officials' side. Uh, we interviewed uh, Fauci on this program earlier this week. And he, I asked him about the lab leak theory, and you know, he said now he's adopted this posture that, well, you know, I'm not ruling anything out, so that's fine. Uh, but then wants to fight over the definition of gain of function at every turn. Uh, wants, to my view, to kind of ignore, you know, very legitimate, not ignore, but kind of sidestep by saying, well, that's not exactly quibbling over the definition. We're not really doing that because it's something a little different from what people are saying. Well, whatever it is, we are very concerned about the U.S. government funding research that manipulates viruses in lab conditions where accidents can happen and there's poor safety records and it's not out of our it's, it's out of our control how can we trust our health officials to be honest and transparent about that he's ridiculous i mean there are emails early emails in the pandemic of him between him and francis collins uh, basically trying to put this theory away because there are there's culpability involved in it and i was reading a, an old article from early in the pandemic on cnn it was about something tucker carlson had said and the article just flat out refers to it says you know it should be noted that tucker carlson also was saying something about the racist conspiracy theory uh, that the virus leaked from a lab and it's just mm. crazy when you look back, it's to Ryan's point, whether or not you think that Donald Trump or Tucker Carlson or people, conservatives in general, um, have problems with, you know, they're they're flirting with, you know, bigotry or whatever, whether or not you think that I obviously disagree, but whether or not you think that it is not your job as a journalist to protect powerful people who have their own interests at stake just because you don't like the other guys. And that's basically what we've seen happen for the last two years, protecting, uh, you know, there's a there's a reporter on a PBS special uh, who covers China for the New York Times, who in this documentary, it's a frontline documentary, she comes out and says, yeah, I was a little too trust trusting of China in the beginning. And, you know, I didn't think that they would lie to us this strongly um, or that they would be this misleading. Um, and of course they are. And so, I, I mean, I just, instead of learning, it's the opposite, right? Like people are just not absorbing any of the really important lessons that we all had to learn the hard way during the pandemic, which is that you have to ask questions of people in power, whether or not you like the guys on the other side, whether, you're not, whether or not you like the people in power. Yeah, I think the issue here is that you just can't rely on your priors here in predictable ways. When I spoke to Jeffrey Sachs about this recently, who is uh, chairing Lancet uh, Medical Journal's uh, COVID-19 origin research uh, investigation, he was pointing out that several of the scientists across national borders had a really trusting understanding of each other just because they were within the scientific community and almost didn't see themselves as political actors in the same way that people mm -hmm. from other kinds of communities, they, you know, explicitly co political community or some other type of um, arena would see themselves as. They saw themselves as mutual scientists. They saw themselves as working together. And I think your point you made just a little bit, uh, a little bit ago, Emily, about the fact that 
there are sh there's shared culpability here. Uh, really obscured some of the finger pointing that was happening earlier on, and how it isn't about whether or not you want to blame China or not when you have so much. U.S. money involved. And I remember some of those early actors who were being cited for how lab link theory could absolutely not be the cause of the pandemic were in fact tied to those U.S. money sources going to Wuhan and those conflicts of interest weren't disclosed. So I think the, the liability point is so crucial here. If at any time the la it is proven that lab link theory was at issue here, given how much has been observed about the conditions at the lab being unsafe, and given the billions and billions and I don't know, you know, untold numbers of money and, and death that has uh, accrued because of this, it's a disaster, and nobody wants to be holding that ball. And I think there, the reality is that there's a lot of shared responsibility, which is why early in the pandemic we saw so much in the way of liability waivers coming down over the New York healthcare stuff and the nursing home stuff, liability waivers everywhere because everyone knows that no one wants to be left holding this this ball. Ryan, do you think that there is going to be any effort to hold any folks accountable, even if there were? Do you think it's almost moot because everybody's judgment proof because of the extreme costs that have uh, incurred over this this virus? Do you think there people have basically decided to give up any, any chance of tracking down uh, a lab leak theory because what are you going to do if you do find somebody accountable? I mean, sad, sad as it is to say, if uh, if and when Republicans take control of Congress, I think you'll start to see, you know, investigations with subpoena power, you know, going going after this this question. And that's one reason that I would hope that uh, that Democrats would like get get into the mix now, like start looking into this now, so it doesn't just become partisan. Because one of the questions that I get asked a lot that really used to confuse me, but I I, I just like accept it now as as a question that I'll get asked is who cares? Like why why like. The horse is out of the barn. The people are dying. The pan pandemic's happening. Well, you know there are a lot more horses in this in these barns, uh, and some of these. And this is this could be a small horse uh, compared to the ones that are still in this barn. You know, COVID came out with you know what a 0.5 percent fat fatality rate, uh, which is you know devastating as it is. It's probably trickled down you know significantly since then as it's evolved into a milder version. But there are pathogens that that this lab and these other labs are studying and are working on that have, you know, 10, 15% fatality rates. Hmm. You know, you, you get a, you get a virus circulating among the public that's killing one out of 10 people. Uh, you know, that's just, that's just a disaster of biblical proportions. Hmm. And so, and the, for the scientific community to say that, yeah, you know what, it might've been a lab as Fauci is now saying, it might've been, a, it might've been a lab leak, but we don't know. And to kind of stop the conversation there and to say, you know, Okay, wait a minute. So it's actually possible. We don't know for sure, but it's actually possible this pandemic might have come from a lab. That means we need to radically rethink what we're doing in these labs, the safety mm. precautions we're taking and where and you know who and where we're, we're setting them up. They probably shouldn't be 500 yards away uh, yeah. from a gigantic seafood market. Like if you want to do this, do it on some deserted volcanic island you know, where you have to you know, stay for a month after you've gone into the lab uh, or whatever. Like we... we if you're going to continue doing this research, instead they'll say, yeah, it might've come from the lab, we don't know, uh, and then just move on and just and continue to do more and more uh, dangerous research at more and more labs around around the world. And we just desperately do not want, you know, 10 years from now to be looking back at COVID 
as as the mild pandemic, as yeah, the, they're, as they're, the one that we mm-hmm. long for. We don't want nostalgia yeah. for this time. <laughs> There's no attitude I understand less than the, well, what does it matter now approach to, to this question. Because it, it absolutely matters. If just as a as an issue of genuine curiosity of trying to understand the trajectory of history. You would want to, you want this question answered, uh, even if it didn't have policy implications. But it certainly absolutely has policy implications. So uh, Ryan and Emily, uh, it was a pleasure to uh, have all four of our, our faces on screen at one time and uh, happy to hand the baton off to you guys uh, tomorrow, right? Today's Thursday, yes. right? Yes, tomorrow. So we'll uh, catch you on Rising Fridays. Thanks for being with us. See you guys. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis filed a complaint this week against a Miami restaurant for exposing children to, quote, sexually explicit drag shows. Here's what he said. Well, first of all, there was a video out of Dallas where they had all these young kids putting money in the underwear of these drag queens at a bar. And that's totally unacceptable. And I said that at the time. Then what happened was a week or two later, there was video from a place that had similar stuff. And then that was identified as being in Florida. So we said, wait a minute, having kids involved in this is wrong. That is not consistent with our law and policy in the state of Florida. And it is a disturbing trend in our society to try to sexualize these young people. That is not the way you look out for our children. You protect children. Here to discuss DeSantis's statements are journalist Rebecca Azor and culture editor at The Federalist and co-host of Rising Fridays, Emily Jashinsky. Welcome to you both. Hi, good morning. morning. And we do have what we believe to be video from that drag brunch. Let's play some of that uh, in right here. We, here we go. So, Emily, I'll start with you. You know, what do you think should be the right response, if any, from government actors? I think, you know, I, like many of the people probably watching this, think that is not a good parenting choice to expose uh, a young, very, looked like a very young child to that level of sexual, in-person sexual uh, conduct. However, I don't know that it's necessarily a matter for the governor. You know, what is your take on all this? I mean, yeah, this is getting to the question between like conservatism and libertarianism. I know. Robbie, you and I could talk about for an hour because I think the vast majority of the country would rightfully see a parent taking intentionally taking their children to an event like that as wrong. Some people may not. Increasingly, some people may not. But I think we're still in you know a consensus position. Majority of the country would see that as wrong. I think it's wrong. Um, but whether or not the government should intervene that's a question that you know, gets to i think we have plenty of laws on the books that prevent that protect children from sexually explicit content um, and so i'm perfectly comfortable in fact i think it's it's wise uh for the the state to intervene in this particular case um i don't think it's wise for the business uh to be doing this either i don't think it's in their business interests i don't think it's in their ethical interests um but where, of course, you know, the, the, the difference between shows for children and shows in general, that's a, obviously a huge distinction. This isn't a show for children, but it is a show. There is a kid's menu. Uh, there's a kid's uh, meal on the menu. Um, this particular TikTok is saying, you know, you, children should be um, included in drag shows. But if the, if the Republican Party starts going after 
regular drag shows, that's another thing entirely. But anything where it's, it's sort of it's specifically including children, I don't think will be a political liability because I think the vast majority of the country is on the page of, you know, that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, so there are a lot of issues here, I think, that are happening at the same time. There is this kind of civil liberties question of whether or not you think this is appropriate or inappropriate. Is it the government's job to be swooping in and policing what parents are doing and how they're choosing to raise their children outside of some higher bar that would actually provoke the intervention of Child Protective Services? And again, I think a lot of people recognize that Child Protective Services are often poorly calibrated and overreaching and breaking up families in a way that is not necessarily in the best interest of the child already. But you know, people are looking at this and looking at the complaint specifically and saying, it says the Supreme Court has recognized that men impersonating women in the context of suggestive and indecent performances constitutes a public nuisance. So some might ask, is the issue here that it's too sexual, which some a lot of people may agree with, or that it's men impersonating women? Is, is it the kind of LGBTQIA aspect of this that's really triggering? And the reason that people are asking that question is because, you know, you can go do a quick Google and find a story about a Hooters in also in Florida that not only has uh, children there, children were given free meals for wearing their Halloween costume, uh, the Halloween costume being a little girl in the Hooters costume. Now, I'm not sitting here casting judgment on whether or not the Hooters outfit on a little girl, which is basically just a tank top and shorts when you're not actually in Dallas because you're a child, is that you know big of an issue. But it, there does seem to be some inconsistency here between what kinds of sexual conduct are considered to be so pernicious that the state should intervene. Rebecca, what do you think about that? Is there an inconsistency there? There is. I, you know, I, I, this is what I think, right? In these videos, however we may feel, it's not your kid, it's not Robbie's kid, it's not Emily's kid, it's not my kid. It's somebody's who took, brought their kid there um, as a parent and who cares about what we think as, you know, in, in their parenting choice. Um, but that's what they decided to do. This has been going on at the restaurant for years, for years. And I think it's just, you know, whether or not we like it, whether or not we think it's a great par parenting choice, it's not our kid. Now, this again, this has been going on at the restaurant for years right now. The Santa's attacking, um, you know, drag shows or drag queens or making this about something that it really isn't. It's very interesting, especially when he's been pushing in Florida, um, you know, the whole, you know, parent's choice. You educate your child uh, the way that you want to as a parent, um, you know, to make it work in his favor. But when it comes to this, it's like, oh, no, this is drawing the line when there are movies that are kids movies that where people are in drag or even cartoons growing up where they have you know little sexual things within the cartoons that they're watching in today's day and age all a kid has to do is get on twitter right and see more sexual stuff than that so you know if this is the parents uh, choice this is what it is there are so many other different issues that DeSantis could be focused on which affects children like these housing costs kids could be um, literally homeless right now um, you know gun laws we know that there are massacres happening in schools all the time where kids are in more danger than what you see at, the, at, at a dang restaurant with you know, a child, a parent's choice, bringing a child to a drag show. I think there is so much more that puts, you know, children um, in danger than, than this. Like, the kid didn't die. The kid wasn't hurt. This is I just think it's over. It's just 
doing the most. But em Emily, what do you make of that? Is there an inconsistency between a DeSantis policy that says parents need to have wide latitude how to raise their children how they want, you know, wanting to take certain reading materials out of school and, and those kinds of things, and the choice here or the decision here to try to limit people's freedom more broadly to take their child to different kinds of entertainment venues? Yeah, so, and this is getting to what Robbie, I think, was uh, asking about, too. And your point about child protective services is a really good one, because even from the rights perspective, we have seen child protective services be weaponized um, in a way, like, if you don't agree with state laws when it comes to sex and gender, then child protective services can be weaponized against you. And so, to Robbie's point, yes, there's an argument that parents can be making these decisions better than the government. And Rebecca's point as well, that, you you know, if, if, if we want the, uh, if we trust parents over government, then there's a complete argument for saying that this is a matter of parental choice. That said, we do have guardrails um, and some of the problems is we no longer define, we no longer share definitions of what constitutes sexual content, of what constitutes pornography. We, we don't share common definitions of that anymore and we cannot come to the same place on the table saying, well, a child where you have tassels on an adult's nipples um, and there's a child holding the hand and there's this, you know, very, I, I mean, I would say it's, it's obviously a sexual display. If you think that's, you know, something children don't need to be protected by, protected from, okay, we can have that argument. I disagree. And I think most of the country probably disagrees, but uh, the point is, we no longer share those those common positions, um, and, and that, that makes it really hard. Isn't the question if that right. if the parent of the child disagrees? You know, is this the kind of conduct that is so harmful that we feel like there needs to be an intervention that approximates, you know, something a criminal intervention or separating families from each other? Is the I mean, because this is what we're really talking about here. Do we want the kind of intervention that says? A parent taking their kid to a drag show, which I get it, there's boobs. I would argue that babies see some boobs, but this isn't just boobs, it is <laughs> an explicitly <laughs> kind of more sexualized environment. Does this, it does, is, the, is it in the best in interest of the child to say, if your parent does this, then you should be separated from the parent? And if it's something short of that, then why is this even a national conversation? Like, yeah, what, no, what no, is no, the I intervention, you know? Right, exactly. And that's why I'm comfortable with DeSantis's. Uh, he just filed a complaint with the restaurant, um, not with parents, not mm -hmm. with police. It was just a complaint with the restaurant. Um, maybe he would take further steps. I don't know. But a complaint with the restaurant is perfectly within the grounds that I'm comfortable with. But yes, that is a super, super important question. Um, and I think we're getting to a point where Robbie's libertarian perspective on this is kind of helpful uh, because we no longer, like, we have to trust ourselves more than the government because we don't have this common ground, this consensus uh -huh. to pull from when we are making these laws. Um, and so we have to be able to sort of protect ourselves in the way that we define. Um, and, you know, I think that's a really dangerous place. But as somebody, you know, who sees, you know, for instance, what is commonly referred to as wokeness, like creeping into uh, Title IX, creeping into our laws mm -hmm. and our policies through the bureaucracy, um, that's really frightening. And I do think, you know, it's, it's time to empower parents and families over government, certainly. You know, Rebecca, you said something uh, interesting a minute ago uh, th that I think is is true, that if you're, you know, the kind of parent or or kind of social conservative who is alarmed by, you know, what we saw in that video, uh, fair enough, but you are right that you know, even if we're, 
you know, put, put aside the violence in schools, even if we're just talking about exposure to sexual content, there's no question that online is there's far, far, far more at earlier ages for the vast majority of kids than anything they're going to encounter at a, at a drag show or a Hooters or whatever. <laughs> um, so I, but in, in your view, does that, you know, it suggests that there should be some kind of policy intervention on that side, on the Internet side? Oh, for sure. Now that, you know, I think all across the board, if we're going to attack it, I'm, I'm from Florida. I'm a Florida girl. Naturally, I'm from South Florida. When you go to Miami or anywhere that's near the beach, you see more than that just walking by on the beach. You know, they're in their thongs. Um, they're in, you know, some of them are topless. You see that and you see children there as well. They're seeing this every single day. This is the culture of Miami. This is what it's like. So, you know, I think that this is a direct attack just on or because, um, you know, it's LGBTQIA plus community. I think specifically so. Um, you know, you again, you see this all there. Now, across the board, I do think, you know, online you see worse on these television shows. You can just turn on a television show. You see worse. You see a lot of sexual content amongst like teenagers, things like that. Um, so if we're going to be attacking what kids are seeing um, or, you know, what the parents' choice is. We need to go all across the board. I really just think um, it has something to do, especially with it being uh, the community that is LGBTQIA+. I think that's why it's being, um, it's everywhere and it's being attacked in this way. Not only that, the business itself is owned by people of the LGBTQIA community. So, you know, and they've been doing this for years, for years. And now, right now, their business is under attack and can possibly lose its liquor license um, because of this complaint. So super, super quickly on that point, I just want to say I think it's absolutely the, the sexualization and the saturation of our culture with sexualization is what Republicans are responding to politically, whether or not they're doing it ethically or morally, because they actually believe in it is another question. But I think they've recognized effectively parents right 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 great point yeah but i think they've recognized that we have become we're sort of like that frog in the the pot of the boiling water that we've just like we've just sort of become accustomed to and conditioned um and instead of throwing in the towel and saying you know the we're sexualized everywhere um they're saying well there's a political incentive because parents are kind of exhausted with this to saying we will uh, when it comes up, you know, when there are viral videos, we will exert, you know, sort of the, the power of the state to, uh, you know, protect children from this. So I think that hyper sexualization of our culture is what Republicans are starting to respond to. Rebecca and Emily, thanks so much for this great discussion. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> You know those texts the Secret Service deleted from January 6th? Well, our next guest, Ken Klippenstein, would like to speak to the manager. Ken has filed a complaint with the National Archives through the National Security Counselors over the deleted texts related to January 6th. The letter reads, I write on behalf of my client, Ken Klippenstein, to formally request that the acting archivist immediately request the Attorney General initiate actions to recover the text messages from January 5th and 6th. Reporter at The Intercept, Ken Klippenstein, joins us today in studio to discuss further. Welcome. Hi, good to be with you guys. Okay, help us understand what's going on here. What is the uh, expectation in terms of actually getting these text messages, and what do people hope to find? Yeah, so when I broke the story last week of the Secret Service messages on January 5th and 6th being deleted, which we now know more about from subsequent reporting, uh, metadata exists to suggest that those messages did exist and that they no longer 
um, have access to them. I uh, spoke to my attorney, Kel McClanahan, who specializes in national security cases, and he availed me of this administrative process referenced in the letter, wherein you can um, compel the Justice Department not only to um, consider taking ownership of this and uh, uh, using more of their resources to try to recover these text messages. They have things like, um, um, they have technological means to access uh, deleted messages and things like that that mm. uh, other agencies might not. But in addition to this, it uh, compels the Justice Department to make a formal um, determination as to what exactly happened. Uh, you know, did, what was, was federal le- records law broken when they deleted these things, which I was frustrated after I reported on the dele- deletion of the messages. I had hoped that media would follow up on these kind of things. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, for sure, someone is going to file something like yeah, this. But it didn't. So, so two questions. Uh, also, the technical process of recovering these messages, people would probably be interested in that that's even possible. Or right. do these, they go, there's some other agency that somehow has them, or you have to go to the, with a phone company to get them back? Well, what is that? How does that look? Part of the problem with this is that Secret Service has not been specific about what exactly happened. So when you delete something on a cell phone, that doesn't just mean it's completely disappeared. There is a, uh, there's a trace of it still left on the hard drive. And so you could, you know, presumably go into these phones and try to, the same way that a criminal investigator, the FBI, might look at things and try to conduct uh, forensics, they call it, when they go into these things and extract them from these devices. Presumably they could do that. Uh, Whether or not they can for certain, we don't know because the Secret Service has not been forthcoming about exactly, specifically what they mean by that those messages. And and does, for some reason, the Secret Service operate in some kind of gray zone where it's not clear what records laws pertain to them or something like that? Well, as the name would suggest, uh, they they live up to the title, they're very secretive. And in interviewing uh, former Secret Service uh, for this story, I think that uh, what we're going to see, and I suspect that on the part of Democrats, what they're worried about coming out is this culture of secrecy that exists within it above and beyond what they're authorized. Because obviously there's some things that you know, need to be secret, things like continuity of government, how to protect, you know, uh, pr- protocols for right. protecting elected leaders. That makes sense. But beyond that, uh, in interviewing uh, people, they told me that more than any other agency, executive branch agency they've worked with, the attitude is, you know, we are sort of the Praetorian Guard. You do not trust people from outside the agency, even oversight officials that have uh, proper jurisdiction to look at these things. Mm. And so I think it's interesting that, uh, first of all, that that culture exists, that um, what we're looking at now might have something to do with that, and that um, congressional investigators, uh, the Democrats that chair the committees, I think um, are going to have to make a decision as to whether or not they want to go full bore, find out what happened, and potentially embarrass this institution, which I don't think that there's as much of an appetite for as as people might imagine. That's what's so interesting. Because of the emphasis Democrats have chosen to put on 1-6, with the hearings you can't turn on MSNBC or CNN without hearing kind of nonstop coverage of this event. There seems to be a real confidence that this is perhaps the only good thing, the only good tidbit that Democrats are offering affirmatively going into midterm season. There was an expectation, I think, that there's all the incentives in the world to follow up on this. This was a real kind of, um, you know, red herring of sorts. Deleted text doesn't get any better than that. But you're saying that because of some of these institutional issues that there is some reluctance from your perspective to following up on this? Yeah. um, You know, when a president comes into office, they take ownership of the different executive branch agencies. And so now Biden's in charge. If you look at one of the Secret Service agents uh, that, you know, had a role in January 6th in the sense that um, he was detailed to the White House and Secret Service agents I've interviewed say that's extraordinarily unusual. To, to, to detail somebody to the White House in that way. I don't mean mm-hmm. working at the White House. I mean, it's sort of like a political appointment. And he's re- since returned to the agency, is still assistant director, and he had talked to uh, Mike Pence's deputy national security advisor on that day, saying, you know, we need to 
evacuate him. We need to get him out of this. And the effect of that could have been to, to remove him from the process of certifying the election results. Now, mm -hmm. these are all questions that need to be investigated. But he, as it stands, he's currently the assistant director of the Secret Service. He hasn't been removed. And, you know, in, in, in the interviews that I've conducted, I think that there's not a lot of appetite on the part of the White House. Biden is historically, he's an institutionalist. He doesn't want to rock the boat too much. That's sort of the pitch of his whole presidency that we're not going to. And so I think there, I don't know that it's going to be true. That I think we, we look at the J6 hearings, there are certainly politicized aspects of it. And so you look at that, it's easy to take from that the conclusion that, oh, they're going to be really aggressive in all this. But it's sort of complicated. They could be aggressive in a partisan way that focuses on Trump and doesn't look at the institutions that, that, that may have played some kind of role in January 6th. What are we expecting to see if we were able to look at the text? Are we talking about text specifically from, you know, Trump's, uh, leaving the, the with the speech that he gave and you know wanting to go to the White will there be tax of oh he's trying to grab the wheel or whatever they were discussing <laughs> and that uh, the, that's the thing we don't know and that's yeah. why I filed this thing because there's so much speculation about what's going on and that just irritates me because it's like these are things for which there are administrative remedies that we can try to use some of the institutional power that exists to find out what the specifics are so we don't have to guess and throw these aspersions around and say the reality is I don't know what the messages said the 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 um, Metadata of them shows that ones pertaining to January 5 and 6 were um, deleted. Um, and what was interesting about that is they were deleted, the metadata shows, after they were requested by not just the inspector general, mm. but congressional committees as well. Mm. So what does it show? I don't know. But that timing makes me think that, you know, it might be of interest to the investigation. So what rationale has been offered for why the messages were deleted? Well, that's what's so interesting. So the spokesperson for the Secret Service initially denied it. And it was kind of funny because my story comes out and I think, oh, gosh, I'm a little nervous because the language was so strong. He said, we vehemently deny uh, categorically all this kind of stuff. And then the next day they walked it back and it's like, okay, well, some things were missing. And it was sort of this tiered process of like, okay, turns out that was right, turns out that was right. And they basically, you know, conceded a lot of it, but still have not provided any specifics as to what exactly happened. So then we're in a situation where the worst sort of partisan voices can just guess and, and you know, assume what's there. And we just don't know. We don't know. What is the timeline, you think, for them responding to this legal action you've taken? Um, a matter of weeks. That's what's nice about this. And why I was surprised that no one else in media had activated this, because um, whether or not the Justice Department decides to inject itself in this and intervene, they have to make a determination as to whether the law was broken. And so that can finally give us some concrete answers as to what exactly happened. So we're not in this kind of um, Twitter punditry territory of saying, like, you know, surely this proves X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's, account it's an accountability issue, right? It's exactly. people that people deserve to know. And that's the thing. The Inspector General of Homeland Security was himself a Trump appointee. So this narrative that it's, um, you know, Biden, whole, Biden administration holding, um, uh, you know, Trump to account, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, they're the ones that have gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Secret Service and trying to find these things. And what's interesting is um, um, when, when, you know, Congress talks about this, there are multiple avenues of inquiry. It's not just the January 6th committee. The Department of Homeland Security itself, through its inspector general, has appropriate access to these things. Um, so there are different, so there are these parallel lines that make the entire investigation a, a, a lot more complex than I think the cable news sort of coverage of it would suggest. Hmm. And, and so I just want to follow up on a point you made earlier. You're saying that because of this FBI detail in the White House, there could have been a decision made to remove Mike Pence from the chain of certifying well, the election again, results it's very, at all. It's very complicated. So um, I don't think the Secret Service was wrong to be worried on that day about um, um, you know succession questions and continuity of government and protecting um, you know Pelosi and the, and the heads of government. That makes sense. 
At the same time, the effect of that would have been to um, you know, move him into a bunker. And actually, Pence, in that moment, when, he's, when the Secret Service um, uh, limo, the vice presidential limo comes up, they say, get in. He says, I'm not getting in there. He's like, you guys are going to whisk me away. You're going to take me away. And he refused to. He said, and, and he hmm. insinuated that he didn't trust one of the people in the Secret Service car. Again, hmm. we don't know why that is. It could be that he just wanted to go and certify, get this thing done with, and didn't. Or it could be it was a legitimate, in interviewing people that work on continuity of government and uh, Secret Service agents, they said that in that situation, it, it could be legitimate to be worried about the president's safety. I mean, there was unrest, you know, people got injured. So it could just be a misunderstanding, and maybe he was overly nervous about what it would mean. And then another, an entire another factor is these Secret, Secret Service agents say that often they have their protocols and then the person, the protectee as they call them, doesn't necessarily co cooperate with them because they're just like, this is ridiculous. I can, you know, let me, do, I don't want to look weak by, you know, running out. I want to, um, you know, there are questions of political optics. So maybe he just didn't want to, you know, embarrass himself or, or draw duration for, for leaving and, and potentially delaying the election. That, that's my whole point in all this, is we don't know, and I wish the media would use some of these avenues of inquiry to, to, to get answers so that we don't have to guess. Mm. Well, so exciting that you decided to right. get these answers, and we'll, <laughs> we wish you luck, and we'd love to see what's in these text messages. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. thanks for being here so much. On Wednesday, Senator Joe Manchin agreed to a deal on a spending package. Now, the plan would address health care, prescription drugs, and climate change. President Biden apparently approves of the roughly $500 billion deal that checks off some of the Democratic priorities. But does it go far enough? Here to help break this down is David Dane, the executive editor at The American Prospect. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So what is your opinion of this bill? Does it go far enough? Well, I mean, compared to where we were 24 hours ago, it goes a lot further. Uh, the expectation was we were just going to pass uh, some kind of modest prescription drug reform and then extend subsidies for the Affordable Care Act to uh, the insurance exchanges. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, Manchin comes in and says, I'm, I'm back on board with uh, a, a climate package that, uh, you know, the word gets thrown around, the phrase kind of the, the most historic fight against climate in American history is true, but I mean, the bar is, is quite low for that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and then it's funded by uh, increases uh, in, in taxes. And uh, th this is something that was thought to be off the table. And uh, I think it's, uh, you know, while obviously not where we were initially last year when when Joe Biden was putting out his American Families Plan and American Jobs Plans, it's significant and uh, it it's something that uh, should make a dent in uh, carbon emissions. It should uh, bring, you know, a pretty modest but but significant measure of fairness to the tax system. And uh, it, it, it should uh, be a, a, an advance on, on health care. So to what do you attribute this sudden ninth inning shift? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, if you talk to Manson, he'd say he didn't shift at all. But uh, two weeks ago, we had this spate of reports that he walked away, that he, he, he didn't want to talk about any tax increases or any climate measures, uh, and then kind of everybody 
pointed to him as the man who took this down and the man who burned the planet. And uh, I think the fact that that came from all sides, not just activists, was important. That that Joe Manchin cares about being trashed on the New York Times op-ed page. He cares about being singled out as the one person who stopped this. And he's been singled out so much for the last uh, last several years. But yes, but that was by activists. This was by everybody. So you're telling me, David, you're telling me that if the Democratic Party, who's been claiming that Manchin hasn't been holding up the entire Joe, uh, Joe Biden agenda, that this has been Joe Manchin's presidency, that if the Democratic Party establishment had simply joined activists to put pressure on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema this whole time, we could have had Joe Biden's entire Build Back Better agenda? Uh, I am not saying that. Uh, you're uh, able to say that. Um, uh, I, I, you know... Joe Manchin was always going to be a a tough case here, right? He was always going to contour this to whatever uh, beliefs that he had. Um, I think at the end, he wanted to be protected. He would would much rather, if the stories were Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema did X, or Joe Manchin and Josh Gottheimer did X, that would have been easier for him. But it it was all about him in that moment. And uh, and and so he he came back and and then, of course, you know, uh, I don't know exactly, you know, when this was agreed to, but certainly the announcement was delayed for maximum effect. So uh, there was this other bill on semiconductor manufacturing that Republicans shared uh, uh, votes on. Uh, This was yesterday in the Senate that 17 Republicans voted for this bill that was a priority of Biden's. And uh, earlier, Mitch McConnell had said, if you go forward with reconciliation, we're going to hold this bill hostage. We're not going to pass this bill. Uh, And so, you know, Manchin blows up and walks away. And the expectation is that uh, that's dead. And McConnell relents and allows uh, uh, the the Republicans to go forward and, and, you know, cooperate on that bill. And four hours after it passes in the Senate, Manchin announces that there's a deal. I mean, I, 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 this is almost the opposite of what you would expect if you're talking about the, the posture of Democrats and Republicans typically. The Machiavellian one, it seems, uh, in, this, in this case, was uh, Schumer, uh, who waited until Republicans had uh, cooperated to, to announce the deal. And McConnell looks like the guileless one. I mean, uh, as I wrote in my story today, if you, you told me like a cosmic ray hit Washington and flipped everybody's brains, huh. giving, giving Schumer the cunning of a Republican and McConnell the, the, the guilelessness of, uh, of a Democrat, that would be a more plausible explanation than, than, than the truth. Well, let's talk about some of the specifics here, because I, I've seen some mixed reviews. I think Democrats have been hurt, leftists have been hurt, and they are skeptical about this, in part because the scale is so much smaller than the original proposals that Biden came into all of this with, um, but also because they broadly are skeptical of a party that they perceive as being largely in bed with the fossil fuel industry and the, that Joe Manchin is not atypical with respect to the broader attitudes toward uh, a transition to clean energy. So I saw, you know, Peter Kalmus, who's a NASA climate 
climate scientist and a climate activist tweeting, you know, surprise deal, $369 billion over 10 years for, quote, energy climate programs financed, as you pointed out, by taxes on the rich. Great. We need details on these programs. Will they be for fossil gas and other boondoggles? Will, and, and also able to recognize that this is only still 4.6% of the military budget. So for scale there, I mean, is this, I mean, this is the crucial question that climate scientists are asking. Even if this is an improvement on the mean, is this the level of investment in climate that actually can keep us from getting to the tipping points that spell even more of a cataclysmic climate shift than the one we've already earned with our inaction? Sure. So this, uh, the claim is that the bill would reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. That's about 80% of the Biden climate goals. Uh, this is not 80% of the funding that we saw in the initial uh, Build Back Better package. That was at $550 billion in investment. Um, this is 369 and it's, that includes some level, it's a little bit indeterminate what, of uh, uh, funding for things like, uh, uh, you know, biofuel production and offshore oil and fossil fuel production as long as it has carbon capture on it. Mm. Uh, this is obviously the way that, that Democrats were able to get Manchin's buy-in. You know, you're sustaining carbon emissions and hopefully slightly cleaner ones right now in exchange for a green transition. There is also what is called a climate bank in there. It's uh, funded at $27 billion. That's supposed to uh, attract private investment and level up. So uh, the, the claim is that you're, you're ending up getting more bang for your buck uh, because you're bringing the private sector in to finance uh, some clean energy. Uh, uh, projects. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, 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 I would like to see some independent climate modeling uh, yeah. of this bill. Um, the, the, the claim, you know, there was a claim, for example, in the infrastructure bill that we were going to fix all the lead water pipes in the country, even though the investment was less than half what it was in the initial envisioning, which was supposed to fix all the lead water pipes in the country. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a do more with less here, but uh, people that I respect uh, are point to a lot of uh, really good things in the bill. There is a $7,500 uh, tax credit given at the point of sale uh, uh, for electric vehicles, for example. There's $60 billion in environmental justice funding in the bill, uh, there's there's uh, you know a, a grants to utilities to decarbonize, including direct pay credits for public power facilities. So there's a lot to like here. I mean, people have criticized those uh, t um, those credits for electric vehicles for largely being kind of regressive. The vehicles are so expensive that even $7,000 off is going to people who would already be able to afford these more expensive vehicles. Well, and then it's, it's giving let, credit let me, let me to just, our elite class to talk well, about, oh, you know, we don't care about high, high gas prices because you should just be able to get an electric mm -hmm. vehicle. And, let me, let me and it benefits the manufacturers also, as well. There's, mm -hmm. there's also a $4,500 credit for used electric vehicles, and that is targeted at people who make less than $7,500 a year. So the, the hope of this bill is to bring that, that electric vehicle down the chain so it is a, more affordable 
for people uh, who who have you know uh, a more modest budget. Uh, that's that's the attempt anyway. There certainly is uh, more put towards the transportation sector and electrifying the transportation center sector than there is towards say walkability or uh, uh, mass transit. Of course, that was in the infrastructure bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you're gonna there, there's going to be a lot of need for sprawl and roads uh, because. Uh, what you're boosting here is is uh, vehicle transportation. Before we wrap, I just wanted to quickly get the specifics on what's going on with the prescription drugs, because I know that's uh, front mm-hmm. and center in a lot of people's mind. What can they expect to feel differently going forward in that in that a- area? I mean, if they're not a senior, not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, this is very much targeted towards Medicare. Initially, uh, the vision was that the... the uh, uh, negotiation of prices through Medicare would also be available to private payers, which means that uh, patients who weren't 65 and older would get the benefit. That is no longer the case. Uh, it's it's really only 10 drugs, uh, and that starts in 2026. Um, there is there are out-of-pocket caps for seniors, uh, and there are some other benefits, uh, free vaccines and things like that. Um, but this is largely targeted at, at uh, you know, public programs and specifically Medicare. Um, uh, uh, the one thing that I think should be done is, uh, this gets a little complicated, but there's a separate bill about insulin, right? And insulin is kind of a, a signature failure of the current pharmaceutical system. It's, it's been in, you know, off patent for like 100 years, and yet it still triples in price. Um, so, uh, because there's that separate bill, insulin measures that were, and that included a copay cap of $35 a month, uh, those measures were in the Build Back Better bill on the House side. They were taken out because they're in this separate bill that's bipartisan, uh, and, and Manchin wanted to see that bipartisanship flourish, uh, even though it doesn't have 10 votes. Uh, it does hmm. not have 10 Republican votes. There's no way it's going to pass. So I would like to see the insulin measures put back into this bill. Uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, organizing has been done around that. I don't know if it's going to happen, uh, but that's an area where, you know, you could extend that to Medicaid, you could extend that to TRICARE, and you could you could get a lot more people uh, uh, who, who benefit from this bill rather than just seniors. Hmm. Well, thank you for those clarifications, David. We will continue to be following this, obviously. Well, ABC News has been hit with a cease and desist letter after the host of The View made defamatory, according to the letter, remarks against conservative organization Turning Point USA. Turning Point held a student action summit over the weekend in Tampa, Florida, where neo-Nazis protested outside. Turning Point tweeted that students at the summit confronted the neo-Nazis and security tried to remove the protesters but were not able to due to them actually protesting on public property outside the building. The conservative group Turning Point USA has condemned the group of neo-Nazis and said they have nothing to do with the organization. Yeah, but where was DeSantis is what I want to know. But you let them in. You let them in and you knew what they were. So you are complicit. We'll be right back. 
Whoops. <laughs> There's they, the overstep. Whoopsie. Yeah, that's uh, well. Now I More get like where the whoopsie. defamatory language came <laughs> right. out. Yeah. Uh, the New York Post uh, points out that the cease and desist letter stated that these remarks were harmful to TPUSA's reputation and brought the organization and its student affiliates into disrepute with the public, potential donors, and current and future business partners, posing a significant financial loss to the organization. ABC News was given until July 27th to retract and apologize, according to the letter. Here's the View's apology. So on Monday, we talked about the fact that there were openly neo-Nazi demonstrators outside the Florida Student Action Summit of the Turning Point USA group. We want to make clear that these demonstra demonstrators were gathered outside the event and that they were not invited or endorsed by Turning Point USA. A Turning Point USA spokesman said the group quote, 100% condemns those ideologies and said Turning Point USA Security tried to remove the neo-Nazis from the area but could not because they were on public property. Also, Turning Point USA wanted to clarify, uh, wanted us to clarify that this was a Turning Point USA summit and not a Republican Party event. So we apologize for anything we said that may have been unclear on these points. Hmm. Unclear, well, untrue. I mean, Look, that was a correct <laughs> Well, I don't know what you were going to say, but I was just going to say that uh, maybe they got briefed wrongly. That's a, that is a, a, an example of where you yell at your producer. Be like, why did, you, why did you tell me it was inside or apply to me? And or Whoopi we'll just got it really we'll, wrong. We'll I don't know. Whoopi seemed to be going rogue there yeah. at the end. Because I think all of the stuff, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm only just watching it the once, but it did seem like most of the other stuff was just identifying that they were there, having your opinions about why these groups are going outside and, and, and yeah. attending these kind of things on the outside is, a, I think, a p completely legitimate line of Well, inquiry. but I think about the, the line about why didn't DeSantis say anything was, was right. suggesting that maybe they thought they were there as Fair part. Enough. Maybe the view was, maybe Fair they enough. thought and were suggesting that the group was there as part of the Fair event. Enough. But this, this is my continual issue with the left. Even when you have kind of a slam dunk, they're frequently overcharging people with more than they can actually get stick. I think it's enough to raise the question of why one's politics attract from time to time a certain element outside, mm -hmm. right? If I were throwing events and Nazis kept showing up at my events, I would at least ask myself the question, Brianna, what am I doing? Is it just that I'm well? <laughs> my my spider cupcakes look a little too much like swastikas, and maybe I should do a redesign. I don't know. I'm saying it would it trigger some thought, and I think it's perfectly legitimate to ask why these kinds of groups see allyship, like why white supremacists, Nazis, whatever, seem to see allyship in certain sectors of the conservative sphere, as opposed to on the left. However. Even when you have an opportunity to kind of draw those kind of inferences, you get instances like this where ultimately becomes a conservative win because they overreached. You get kooky people showing up to leftist events, do you not? It happens. I don't think it happens. I think and it again, happens at all political events where you get right, left, everything. You get some fringy people. I don't recall. I remember there was one event in the context of the Bernie campaign where someone brought a swastika to an event. And it was someone antagonizing Bernie Sanders, a Jewish man, with a swastika. Maybe, maybe you don't get the you same know? kooks, but you do get... Well, the, the quality of kook matter, does it not? I would expect some maybe... Look, I'm, the, the, the baseball game, famously, where Congress members were shot, 
that person had a weird mixed up ideology and some of it was he liked Bernie Sanders, he liked some conservatives, he liked a lot of different kinds was, of people. He was a big Bernie fan. Yeah, I'm not was, saying that's Bernie's but fault, he, he but although the left liked, tends to try to make this accusation. But. but he also said he liked a lot of other people on the political spectrum. It was it was a mixed bag. But that's, I think, a different kind of a thing. Someone doing something well, that's a violent bad, person, taking a violent but... action, who has some political ideology, is a different kind of thing than a whole political movement, an ideological movement, seeing themselves associated with you. And I, and I don't think you can see someone like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I'm sorry, whatever you think about this, self-identifying as a, a Christian nationalist, a term, even if she is not aware of the history of that term, it's a term that has a history very closely associated with the Nazi party and explicit white nationalism and not start to draw some conclusions about why it is, whether or not you're intentionally signaling to white nationalist groups, that white nationalist groups see you as their ally. And you and I both know that we can go on Reddit and go on these social media forums and see members of these hate groups gleeful that they think they're getting nods here and there from whether it's Donald Trump or other members of the Republican Party, not all members of the Republican Party, but there's a lot of winking and nodding going on. And if there were a group, from my perspective, who said, oh, I think Brianna endorses my policies, I would be concerned about that and be working overtime to try to distance myself. I think myself it's actually the opposite of that, because aren't they, they're, they're protesting in part because they don't think this organization, the Nazis are there protesting in part because they don't, like the direction this organization has taken because they don't because perceive they it to be, because they not, want it to be Nazi, but it's not. I mean, that is, that is some useful nuance. Are they showing up at Planned Parenthood asking why it's not more Nazi-ish? I mean, are they well, showing up at Greenpeace asking why it's not more Nazi-ish? I mean, I've, de I've like, definitely... I'm not saying it's TPUSA's fault. Yeah. I, you know, I, if I thought that TPUSA were literal Nazis, I wouldn't have gone and debated Charlie Kirk at TPUSA headquarters, yeah. right? Like, that's not the issue. But you don't think that there's any, any reason to be concerned that there is a lobbying effort that Nazis want to lobby your organization to be more accommodating to them? They're protesting the organization. Yeah, lobbying. I mean, in your own words, you just said because they're not right up. They're trying to lobby it to get more conservative, I don't more think na white nationalist. I think there's very little danger of literal Nazis taking over Turning Point, or which is not, a, you know, not an organization I've been associated with or, or I, I probably have many differences with Charlie Kirk and a lot of the people associated with it, but any more than like the Nation of Islam is about to take over democratic activists. I mean, I've seen plenty of those people at plenty of marches for various... Where where, where have you seen the Nation of Islam lobbying the women's for march, some... The well, the pro the, at protest events, they no, march that, alongside... No, the accusation at the Women's March was that one of the organizers happens to be sympathetic to... Yeah, well, that's Farrakhan. a more direct connection than we can right, find it here. Wasn't, it wasn't like a, a phalanx of na a nation of uh, Islam protesters arguing for the women's march. Well, how to... much was it? It was a phalanx. How many? I, mean, I would love to see how many actual Nazi people were standing outside this building. Was Look, it like I, again? Was it hundreds or was I, it six? I, I, I bet I'm it's not, closer to six. I, well, it's a little more than six. But I'm not interested in again overcharging TPUSA with yeah. anything that that it is asked of. All I'm saying is, I personally would ask why it is that people from a group that I don't feel any affinity for feel that they have any access to me, any right, any, would have any success 
and arguing that I should move farther in their direction when I am already, in my view, so diametrically uh, opposed to everything that they're interested in. And instead of simply raising those kind of hypotheticals, Tucker Carlson is very good at this. He doesn't make a lot of specific claims. He will just ask the questions of, does this make sense to you? I think that the view would have been much safer just staying in this realm of, it's, it's interesting that these people keep showing up at these kinds of events instead of trying to make these direct claims that obviously weren't true. Well, <laughs> certainly because they had, they had to make that <laughs> apology and clarification. But they might have opened them, themselves up to some kind of a suit because that was a factual assertion yeah. uh, that Whoopi was making there. Now, you know, it, it, she could have claimed she didn't know and it would still be a very complicated and convoluted legal matter, but uh, you don't want to end up there, so good, you don't want to end up there. To, good of them to say they're sorry. Maybe they can be a little little bit more careful in the future, and uh, a lesson to all of us who, maybe they who just a... spout off on, uh, on a yeah, TV look, shows about things to be cautious about maybe, our remarks. Maybe they should have some of the protesters on. I'm sure that'll work out well for everybody involved. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would make for good TV. Good TV. That's all that matters, good TV. <laughs> Here's something interesting. Democrats are actually campaigning for a hard right Trump supported Republican uh, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's the district uh, represented currently by Peter Meyer, who is one of the Republicans who actually voted for Trump's impeachment. So they are the TCCC is running ads uh, in, inadvertently. They're not they're, it's, a, it's a kind of confusing situation uh, about how uh, Meyer's primary opponent, uh, this John Gibbs candidate, is, is really, really in line with Trump and really conservative and isn't that scary with the hopes that Republican voters will see that, think that John Gibbs is the, is the more conservative candidate, then Gibbs will win the primary and then be actually be easier to defeat than Peter Meyer because Peter Meyer has more you know, centrist and across the aisle appeal because of the impeachment vote and thus Democrats uh, will win the seat. So how about that, Brianna? It's, yeah, it's like a Pied Piper approach, which worked out so well when they did this with Donald Trump, right? Elevating the candidate you think it's going to be easier to beat, even if they are more conservative and antithetical to the interests of your party. You say, OK, I'm so confident in my ability as the Democratic Party to win elections that I'm going to set myself up to have to beat someone who is even worse for me if they win. If I were the Democratic Party, I wouldn't have that much hubris, given what my track record was. But this is what they've done. But we should watch this ad. Yeah, watch. Right, it is very confusing, what? the posture of the whole thing, when you actually watch the ad. Yeah, let's play it. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised to push that same conservative agenda in Congress a hard line against immigrants at the border, and so-called patriotic education in our schools. The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. So in, ca in case you're confused, <laughs> Democrats put that ad out. Democrats. That's, that looks like a positive campaign ad to me because they want conservative Republicans, Trump supporters in the district. It's, I guess it's a closely split district right now to support Gibbs instead of Peter Meyer yeah, in the primary. It, it's like, okay, it's a, it's a, it's a 
DCCC like ads, so you have to make it negative, I guess, but it's negative in the way that when you go in a job interview, they ask you about your worst qualities and you say, I'm just too organized. <laughs> I just work too hard. <laughs> like that's the, that's the Republican uh, uh. version of that. Tough on the border, good friends with Trump, works with uh, Carson, you know. It, it reads as an ad to anyone who isn't already, you know, un, unaligned with those kinds of um, politics. And what uh, some in the uh, media are pointing out, because there's a political article about this, there's a New York Times article about this. How can Democrats simultaneously say Trump is an existential threat, unique among all Republicans? Trump is the vile one. We're, we're having these hearings. Look what he did on January 6th. Look what he's done to our democracy. Trump is the threat. And, and we Republicans, all good Republicans like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger should join with us to stop this existential threat. How can they say that on one hand and then be like, and, and we're putting out a message. They're put, we're putting out a, a campaign ad because we'd like you to vote for the Trumpier candidate. Yeah. I mean, the existential threat to the Democratic Party is not having Trump and Trumpism around because the only way they've managed to be successful of late <laughs> is, is running against Trump. Trump. Yeah. Yeah. So, he, right, here's a, here's a guy, Peter Meyer. I, you know, to admit, I, I quite like the guy. He's someone sort of resembling my uh, idea, a libertarian mm -hmm. version of republicanism. Uh, did what Democrats say you should do, the right thing, voted for impeachment, was was not mealy-mouthed about it. He was interviewed on a multiple uh, news outlets, some podcasts afterwards saying, yeah, what I saw on January 6th was horrible. Very little doubt in my mind that what Trump said contributed to it. Th like, this is what you want, Democrats. This is what you want. And uh, they're punishing this guy and, and might get, could very well just have, the, have Gibbs win and then have Gibbs win the the seat and then you have then you have someone who is more like I I don't know John Gibbs exact politics but certainly someone who is would be more likely to object to an election or whatever and to, to do all the things again you're saying are existential threats to our democracy yeah the whole democratic party rhetorical project is falling apart. You claim Trump is an existential threat, you boost Trump voters. You claim uh, Trump Trump candidates. You claim that uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is the worst thing that's ever happened to the Democratic Party. You run uh, Henry Cuellar to beat a young Latina, who, by the way, you also say you care a lot about identity politics, but you run Henry Cuellar to go and beat her, who is an, an anti-choice candidate. You have Democratic uh, groups courting funding from DMFI and other pro-Israel groups to attack and defeat even Jewish candidates. Uh, Mehdi Hassan had a great uh, uh, segment on this the other day. So they're fundraising from these groups to attack members of the constituents that they say the Democratic Party cares about uh, and supports. And it really is, I mean, I think Republicans have been onto this for a little while, not always in good faith, but they have accurately identified the cloak and mirrors of a lot of the Democratic Party rhetoric. And whereas Democrats used to at least be able to claim, well, we stand up for the little guy, we care a lot about labor, we care about historically marginalized groups, we're gonna be there for you in the struggle. They're literally boosting people whose goal is to attack the very communities that they say that they stand for, leaving a lot of voters thinking, well, what is the point of you anyway? And just to familiarize anyone who's forgot this, as you alluded to, this was the Hillary Clinton strategy. Mm -hmm. She wanted Trump. The team wanted yes. Trump. We, they wanted Trump to win the primary because they thought he would be the easiest candidate yes. to beat. They could not have been more wrong, <laughs> obviously. Yep. He won. Uh, it's not even clear if he would have been the easiest candidate to beat in actuality. I'm not sure that is the case. They, they, I mean, it's the most clueless campaign that's ever been run in the history of time, but... Uh, but uh... Yeah, even he was surprised. <laughs> <laughs> they, they told Trump he won the last time around, and he said, 
Really? <laughs> the first time, yeah. 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 <laughs> this time he said he won anyway when he didn't. But uh, anyway, I feel like we I should do some counter-programming here. Like, Brianna, before the cameras were rolling, she was talking about how the left is most afraid of Peter Meyer. So if any of you Trump Republicans are watching, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. We're not campaigning for anyone of any sort, but thought we should call out this kind of... Uh, little bit of trickery from Democrats, which uh, which you said you thought was pretty obnoxious it's as well. It's pretty obnoxious. I'd, I'd like to see them putting this energy into actually supporting the kind of candidates who are aligned with what the average voter in America wants across the aisle. I don't know, can you put this kind of energy behind a $15 minimum wage push or something <laughs> actually popular? All right, well, tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky will be with you for Rising Fridays. And, you know, you can like, share, and subscribe to the podcast so you can never miss you, so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check us out on the Plex TV app. Love a smart TV app. Woo. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. See you later.